Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So in the 1880s, uh, decades before women had the right to vote, Julia Sand wrote a series of letters to President Chester A. Arthur, the first before he was even president. And those letters might really have influenced his presidency. We'll talk about that a little later. This all happened during a period that's known as the Gilded Age. That term was popularized by Mark Twain to describe a society that was very glittery on the surface, but also rotten underneath. It was a time of reform and progress. Some of the reformers that we've talked about on the show before were during this period, but there was also a lot of corruption and inequality and a very deeply partisan political process. And this story of Julia Sand and Chester A. Arthur connects to all of that. Before we get to Julia Sand's letters, we need to talk about Chester A. Arthur's career before he became president and how he wound up in that office, because her letters grow out of all of that. He was born on October 5th, 1829. His father, William, was a minister, a teacher, and an abolitionist, and the family moved around a lot, living in towns in Vermont, New York, and Quebec. Arthur, who his friends called Chet, worked as a teacher and a school principal before moving to New York City to pursue a career in law. One of his first cases was known as the Lemon Slave Case. Jonathan and Juliet Lemon of Virginia had brought eight enslaved people with them to New York. They were planning to emigrate to Texas, and they were going to get on a steamer in New York to go to Texas. But New York at that point had abolished slavery, and a judge ordered for the enslaved people that they brought with them to be freed. Arthur and William W. Everts uh, successfully represented the state of New York when the ruling was appealed. So the ruling stood that these people should be freed. In 1855, Arthur also successfully represented past podcast subject Elizabeth Jennings Graham in her discrimination suit against the Third Avenue Railway Company. Arthur didn't come from money, and he was always looking for a way to move up the economic ladder. To that end, in the summer of 1857, he went to Kansas, which was embroiled in a violent dispute over slavery. In spite of his prior legal work and his family's deep ties to abolition, a big motivation was that he hoped to make money. Yeah, he was really thinking he might get into some land speculation. It wasn't so much about the principles of slavery there. He didn't stay in Kansas very long, though. He was engaged to a woman named Ellen Herndon, who went by Nell, who he would later marry. Nell's father was killed on September 12, 1857, when the SS Central America sank off the coast of Cape Hatteras after a storm. After learning that her father had died, Nell wrote to Chester. She asked him to come home, and he did. The Central America had been carrying gold that was meant to replenish the supply in New York banks. So when the ship sank, the loss of all that needed gold, combined with existing economic issues, set off a financial panic. If this sounds familiar, it is the same shipwreck and panic that came up in our Levi Strauss episode not too long ago. And even though Arthur's legal work had earned him some respect, he just didn't have the experience or connections to earn a good living as a lawyer during such tumultuous economic times. Looking for another direction for his career, Arthur became more and more involved with New York's Republican political machine. If you're not familiar with that term, a 
a political machine is a political party organization that has a boss or a very small clique of people at the top and then a hierarchy of deeply loyal officials and supporters extending all through every level of the government and then out into the community. The name comes from the organization's ability to achieve its goals with an almost mechanical efficiency. Whether that goal is enacting some kind of actual change or just staying in power. Especially in the 19th century, these organizations became synonymous with bribery, fraud, and corruption. They wanted to stay in power not necessarily because they thought they'd do a better job than someone else, but because they ran the government in a way that personally benefited the boss and his cronies. At the same time, political machines could inspire genuinely deep loyalty among voters. For example, the boss might hand out food and clothing in an impoverished neighborhood, making it clear who was to thank for that help. But when that wasn't enough incentive to get voter support, the machine might also turn to intimidation, threats, and fraud. Arthur got his start in all this working with publisher and Republican boss Thomas Weed who was a huge proponent of what was known as the spoils system, and that system was also connected to the way political machines were working. Under this system, which is also known as the patronage system, elected officials and political bosses routinely handed out jobs to their friends and supporters basically as rewards. This bred a lot of inefficiency and corruption. People were being appointed to positions that they really had no qualifications for just because they were connected to somebody in power or people were convinced to support someone in power by being promised a job in exchange for that support. Arthur's most obvious benefit from the spoil system was still to come. Leading up to the Civil War, he joined the New York State Militia, again, more with the hope of advancement than over the issue of slavery. He rose through the ranks and eventually became quartermaster general for the state of New York. He also became connected to Edward D. Morgan, another Republican who became governor of New York. Arthur was increasingly involved in Republican politics during and after the war. By 1870, Thomas Weed was getting older, and his grip as the boss was slipping. Moving into his place was Roscoe Conkling, who eventually became a senator. Arthur also had connections to William H. Tweed, known as Boss Tweed, who ran the opposing and also notorious Democratic political machine known as Tammany Hall. Tweed created a job for Arthur working as counsel to the city tax commission. He had an annual salary of $10,000 doing nobody is exactly sure what. (laughs) Oh, those jobs. Uh, Then on December 1st, 1871, Arthur became the customs collector for the Port of New York. President Ulysses S. Grant appointed him to the position based on the recommendations of Senator Conkling and the previous customs collector, Tom Murphy. Murphy was leaving in disgrace after numerous allegations of fraud, criminal activity, and firing customs inspectors to replace them with men loyal to Roscoe Conkling. In spite of this tarnished reputation, he was allowed to name his replacement. Customs collector was an incredibly powerful and very lucrative role. In terms of his own pay, Arthur was earning as much as $80,000 a year, which is roughly equivalent to more than half a million dollars today, And this included a portion of the fines that were collected and the goods that were received at the port. The federal government made a lot of money at the port, too. There was no federal income tax, so most of the federal government's revenue was coming from customs. And most of those customs were coming through New York collectors. 
So the government in general and the customs collector specifically had a financial incentive to assess fines and fees at the port or to seize goods for reasons that were either overblown or flat out made up. Arthur had always had an affinity for nice things. He liked fashionable clothes and fine food and good cigars. Later on, after becoming president, he would have Lewis Comfort Tiffany completely redecorate the White House and host state dinners that required seven different wine glasses for every guest. So this post as customs inspector really let him indulge his love of finer things as he was taking a cut of all these fines and the goods that were moving through the port some of those fines and seized goods being just for completely fabricated reasons. People called him the gentleman boss. The role also put Arthur in a good position to do favors for his cronies, like waving their shipments through the port without their having to pay. Collected bribes and seized goods were passed around the Republican political machine. Arthur also requested that his employees donate to his faction of the Republican Party, known as the Stalwarts. And this was supposedly voluntary, but not really. Civil service rules implemented in 1872 banned these types of political contributions, but Arthur continued to request them anyway. That cut of the revenue that Arthur personally got also disappeared in 1874 after Congress passed the Anti-Moiety Act, That act followed an investigation into a fine that was assessed. That fine was for more than $217,000, and it had been levied against the firm of Phelps Dodge. Arthur and several of his cronies had all gotten a share of this fine. Arthur's cut of it was more than $21,000. But it turned out that the fine was almost entirely fraudulent. Corruption was threaded all through American politics at this point, but Arthur developed a reputation for being particularly corrupt. Plus, two Republican factions, the Moderates and the Stalwarts, were increasingly at odds with each other. After moderate Republican Rutherford B. Hayes succeeded Grant as president in an incredibly contentious election, he nominated Theodore Roosevelt Sr. to take Arthur's place as customs collector but the stalwart faction of the Senate repeatedly voted against confirming him, and Roosevelt died of stomach cancer with the matter still unsettled. Arthur was finally suspended from the job on July 11, 1878. During his campaign, Rutherford B. Hayes had pledged to spend only one term in office, so at the end of that term, the Republican Party needed to find a new candidate to run in the 1880 presidential election. The stalwarts preferred former President Grant, And the moderates worried that re-electing Grant would cause more division, especially since that would mean he was returning to office for a third term. We haven't gotten into it, but his earlier terms had a lot of the types of corruption that we've been talking about. The anti-Grant wing of the party wound up splitting their votes between two candidates before eventually rallying around James A. Garfield. After 36 rounds of voting, Garfield finally became the party's nominee. Arthur was selected as his running mate, mostly to appease the stalwarts and with the hope of getting votes from the state of New York in the election. Arthur accepted the nomination even though he was still grieving from the recent death of his wife, thinking of the whole thing as an honor and a possible chance at redemption. This wasn't a particularly popular move, though. Almost immediately, rumors started to spread that Arthur had not been born in the United States that he was from Canada or from his father's birthplace of Ireland and thus was not eligible to be vice president. This was such a convoluted and weird and fascinating story. (laughs) We're going to have a whole podcast on it later. Hooray! 
In the end, Garfield won the election. But on July 2nd, 1881, not quite four months after his inauguration, he was shot by Charles J. Guiteau. Police immediately apprehended Guiteau, who proclaimed, quote, I did it and I will go to jail for it. I am a stalwart and Arthur is now president. Guiteau's behavior and statements were odd and erratic beyond just the fact that he had shot the president. And he's often described as a disappointed office seeker because he had been repeatedly turned away while trying to get an appointment as an ambassador. He was so persistent that the Secretary of State eventually ordered him to leave and never come back. But Chester A. Arthur was notorious in this whole system of spoils and cronyism. So in his convoluted logic and disordered thinking, Gateau seems to have thought if Arthur were president, he would get a job. And that's where Julia Sand finally comes into this picture. We will get to her after a quick sponsor break. President James Garfield lived for nearly 80 days after being shot on July 2nd, 1881. And during that time, Chester A. Arthur was at best kind of freaked out. He had not really even considered that he could become president when he accepted the nomination. Just being the vice president was almost beyond the scope of his imagination. Arthur was on a boat that was taking him from Albany back to New York when the shooting happened. As the boat was passing by a pier, someone shouted across the water that Garfield had been assassinated. One of Arthur's colleagues on the deck heard this and came to the saloon to give him the news, and Arthur literally crumpled into his chair. In addition to saying Arthur is now president, Charles Guiteau had told the officers who apprehended him that Arthur, quote, and all those men were his friends, and that Guiteau would have the arresting officers made chief of police. People had already been suspicious of Arthur's character, and then these bizarre statements that Guiteau was making were leading people to wonder whether the vice president had orchestrated this shooting. The general reaction in the press was stunned horror, both to the shooting and to the idea that Arthur was going to become president. The Chicago Tribune called it a calamity. So did former president Rutherford B. Hayes. And the word calamity seems to be the one virtually everyone gravitated toward when describing a potential Arthur presidency. That Arthur really didn't do much to try to take control of the narrative. He had always been extremely secretive when it came to the press. So rather than making some kind of statement or stepping in to lead as the president was incapacitated, he mostly hid. He was also afraid to assume the president's duties because he justifiably worried that it might reinforce the idea that he had been behind the shooting. In a brief visit to Washington, D.C., he told the president's cabinet, quote, I pray to God that the president will recover. God knows I do not want the place I was never elected to. As quickly as he could, he went back to New York and then just tried to stay out of the spotlight. As all of this was happening, Roscoe Conkling was also in the news. He had resigned his Senate seat along with the other senator from New York in an attempt to derail the confirmation of Garfield's choice for, once again, the New York City customs collector. He hoped that the New York legislature would return him to office after he had done this, and the media was sure that if that happened and the president died, not only would there be this calamitous Arthur presidency, but also the notorious Roscoe Conkling would really be running everything from behind the scenes. 31-year-old Julia Sand was following all of this with bated breath. 
Julia was the youngest child of Christian Henry Sand, who had immigrated from Germany, and Isabella Julia Carter. Christian Sand had gone on to become president of Metropolitan Gaslight Company of New York, so the family was well-off and cultured. Julia had at least nine siblings, and in 1881, she and several family members were living at 76 East 74th Street in a home that her brother owned. She was educated and unmarried. One of her relatives would later describe her as a blue stocking, which was slang for an intellectual woman. She was also chronically ill. It's really not clear what her diagnosis might have been, but she had problems with her spine and a number of illnesses that sometimes left her unable to leave her room. At other times, though, she was well enough to travel to some of the area's more fashionable resorts and springs to try to regain her health. You might describe Julia Sand as a political junkie. She didn't have the right to vote, and there were no women in New York state legislature or the federal government. But she devoured political news, and she was informed about candidates and elected officials and about the issues of the day. And on August 1st, 1887, she wrote Chester A. Arthur a seven-page letter. It began in part, quote, The hours of Garfield's life are numbered. Before this meets your eye, you may be president. The people are bowed in grief, but do you realize it? Not so much because he is dying as because you are his successor. What president ever entered office under circumstances so sad? The day he was shot, the thought rose in a thousand minds that you might be the instigator of the foul act. Is that not a humiliation which cuts deeper than any bullet can pierce? Then she went on to say, quote, But making a man president can change him. Great emergencies awaken generous traits which have lain dormant half a life. If there is a spark of true nobility in you, now is the occasion to let it shine. Faith in your better nature forces me to write to you, but not to beg you to resign. Do what is more difficult and more brave. Reform. It is not the proof of highest goodness never to have done wrong, but it is a proof of it sometime in one's career to pause and ponder, to recognize the evil, to turn resolutely against. Rise to the emergency. Disappoint our fears. In this letter, Sand also imagined what might happen if Arthur were shot. She wrote that no one would pray for his well-being as so many people were doing at that moment for Garfield. Instead, she thought the American people would probably think they were well rid of him. This letter was incredibly direct and forward, especially considering that Sand and Arthur were total strangers to one another. She didn't pull any punches about how disliked and distrusted he was and how justified those perceptions were. But she also bolstered him up and imagined a world in which Arthur left all of the wheeling and dealing and corruption of the Republican political machine behind him. When Sand wrote this letter, Garfield's condition seemed relatively stable but also was not really improving. But then in the middle of August, after being moved from the humid and swampy capital to Long Branch, New Jersey, he took a sudden turn for the worse. On September 19th, it became clear that he would not survive. Arthur got a telegram from the attorney general informing him of this, which led him to shut himself up in his home. Later that evening, after some of his colleagues arrived, Arthur left and went for a walk by himself. At about 11.30 that night, when Arthur was back at home, a reporter brought him the news that the president had died. Arthur's response was this, quote, Oh no, it cannot be true. It cannot be. I have heard nothing. After he got a telegram confirming that yes, it was true, he went to his room and wept. 
In the early morning hours of September 20th, 1881, Arthur composed himself. New York Supreme Court Judge John R. Brady arrived at about 2.30 in the morning to administer the oath of office. A formal public inauguration was held in Washington, D.C. two days later. And he got his next letter from Julia Sand about a week after that. And we're going to talk more about that after we have a little sponsor break. In Julia Sand's next letter to Chester A. Arthur, she wrote about what she saw as the unique nature of his grief over the president's death. She noted that Garfield's wife and family were all going through what ordinary families had weathered for all of human history. Arthur's grief, on the other hand, also carried the weight of his newfound and unasked-for responsibility. She wrote, quote, What we all endured during the terrible months of anxiety just passed, you too endured, intensified a thousandfold by the reflection that you were the one human being to benefit by his death, that you had been opposed to him, that some believed you capable of having plotted for his cruel end. You were alone in your sorrow, perfectly isolated. She went on to praise his conduct during those last weeks of Garfield's life, in which he had, by all appearances, avoided scandal and anxiously hoped for the late president's recovery. She suggested that people's opinions of him might be changing. But Arthur's presidency got off to an inconsistent start. As we mentioned earlier in the show, he wanted to renovate and redecorate the White House before moving in. Lewis Comfort Tiffany's team removed 30 barrels of china and 24 wagons full of furniture in the process, which people considered extravagant. He continued to associate with Republican stalwarts, especially when he made trips back to New York, leading people to wonder whether their worst fears for an Arthur presidency would turn out to be true. Soon, though, he started shifting direction. When Conkling demanded that Arthur replace the customs collector for New York with someone of his choosing, Arthur refused. Not long after, he took up the cause of civil service reform. People had already been trying to reform the civil service system before Garfield's assassination. But while most people had concluded that Guiteau was mentally ill, they also thought that this very corrupt and favoritism-based civil service system was at the heart of his illness. Consequently, after Garfield's death, civil service reform became a major political issue, with Arthur, who was a man who had directly benefited from the existing system, being one of its champions. Sand praised this commitment in her letters. Sand's letters ranged from almost casual conversation to specific matters of policy. On October 27, 1881, she wrote a letter in which she named herself his, quote, little dwarf, a reference to the idea that a court jester who often had some form of dwarfism was the only person with the power to speak the truth to the monarch. In another letter in the fall of that year, she suggested that Arthur come to visit her. She also discouraged him from visiting his old political cronies in New York and encouraged him to take care of his health. In the fall of 1882, she told him, quote, "'Remember that you are President of the United States. Work only for the good of the country.'" When the first version of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned immigration from China to the United States, passed Congress, Sand urged Arthur to veto it, which he did on April 4, 1882, calling its terms, quote, a breach of our national faith. After that, Sand wrote to him that the veto delighted her, although her letter also revealed her own prejudices. It said, quote, 
I sent for a horse, and there being no heathen Chinese around, showed my superiority to race prejudice by taking a colored fellow being out to drive. He never thanked me, though, and probably expects to be rewarded. Such is the demoralizing effect of civil rights. (sighs) Humans are complicated. Uh, Congress tried and failed to override Arthur's veto of the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then passed a revised version that restricted immigration from China for 10 years rather than 20. Arthur signed that version into law on May 6, 1882. Sand did not disguise her anger over this, saying, quote, When you vetoed the Chinese bill, the better class of people throughout the country were delighted. Now you sign it. And what is the difference as it now stands? In quantity less, but in quality just as idiotic and unnecessary as the first. The Tsar of Russia might well respond to your remonstrance against the persecution of the Jews with an expostulation against the persecution of the Chinese. Yeah, she was like, this bill is almost exactly the same as the previous one, except that it's shorter. You jerk. What is the deal? (laughs) Yeah. Not long after that, Congress passed the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1882, which earmarked $19 million for things like lighthouse upkeep and navigational buoys. But the act was also viewed as funneling a lot of money into the hands of corrupt local authorities. When Arthur vetoed it, Sand wrote to praise his decision, saying that she was deeply moved by his taking such a correct action under such huge pressure from Congress to do the opposite. This time, though, Congress did overturn the president's veto. Also in 1882, federal prosecution began in the Star Root scandal, which was a bribery, fraud, and corruption scandal connected to mail delivery. Basically, as the United States expanded westward, mail delivery needed to expand along with it. The federal government contracted with private carriers to handle these long, remote western routes. This looped back around to the spoils system, with the contract process just riddled with bribery and corruption and cronyism, including contracts being issued for routes that didn't exist and contractors that didn't actually do the work that they were being paid to do. The first investigations into this had started under President Grant in 1872, but it was during Arthur's administration that this corruption ring was finally shut down. There was a whole series of federal prosecutions. As the investigations and the trials were going on, Sand advised Arthur to, quote, suffer for the sake of truth. And 1882 was also the year that Chester A. Arthur visited Julia Sand. He went to her home in New York on August 20th of that year. His sudden appearance rendered her speechless, something she chastised herself for in letters she wrote later on, although they did discuss some of his recent political decisions while he was there. She was also highly vexed that her entire family happened to be at home that day and dominated the president's visit. In a later letter, Sand suggested that she hoped for another visit. Maybe this time she could paint the president's portrait. On January 16, 1883, Arthur signed the Pendleton Civil Service Act, which was the nation's first comprehensive civil service reform bill. It made the selection of certain government employees the responsibility of the Civil Service Commission, not of officeholders themselves. Exams were also implemented to encourage hiring that was based on merit instead of favoritism. The bill's scope was limited. It only covered Washington-based federal jobs, along with customs houses and post offices that had more than 50 employees. This was only about 10% of federal jobs, although subsequent administrations have expanded the scope of this act dramatically. 
Sam's letters reveal her pleasure at his signing this bill into law, but also some skepticism about whether he would uphold its terms. This reflected the prevailing attitude among the general public as well, because with Arthur's history, it was really hard to believe that he was committed to the bill that he had signed. But as the summer of 1883 wore on, he started assembling this new commission and avoiding his own political cronies as he was doing that. And he also started implementing all those reform measures that he had promised. Sand wrote her last known letter to Arthur on September 15, 1883. Arthur's presidency continued until March 4, 1885. If he ever wrote her back, she never mentioned it, and no such letter survives. So we don't really know whether these letters directly influenced Arthur's decisions as president, but his actions very strongly suggest that they mattered to him. Early in his presidency, he had been diagnosed with Bright's disease, which was used to describe various types of nephritis. There was no effective treatment or cure, and by the time he got Sand's last known letter, he was exhausted and in severe pain. Arthur made kind of a half-hearted campaign for re-election, but the Republican Party did not select him as its candidate. This ended a complicated and definitely not altogether positive presidency, but it also was not at all the presidency that anyone had expected when he took the oath of office. He died on November 18, 1886. The day before he died, Arthur ordered his son to burn his personal papers, almost certainly because he was ashamed and embarrassed over his earlier political career. Chester A. Arthur Jr. supervised the filling and refilling of three burn barrels, adding new papers as the previous batch burned down. But 23 letters from Julia Sand were set aside in a special envelope, labeled in Arthur's handwriting. Julia Sand died in May of 1933 at the age of 83. She was buried at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. Four years later, Chester A. Arthur Jr. died, and Chester A. Arthur III, who went by Gavin, inherited what remained of his grandfather's papers. He became intensely curious about these 23 letters from Julia Sand and their special envelope. On February 10th, 1938, he placed an ad in the New York Herald Tribune to see if he could find any of Sand's relatives. He finally heard from a nephew who had actually been there on the day of the president's visit. This nephew suggested that Sand had kept her letters to Arthur a secret from family and friends, and that the family had no idea why the president would have visited them. In about 1910, the Library of Congress undertook an extensive search for any of Arthur's surviving papers. At that point, the library only had two documents that bore his signature. Over the next few decades, it gathered a small collection, largely from the descendants of Arthur's correspondence, but also from Gavin Arthur. The library obtained Julia Sands' letters in 1958, Gavin Arthur left the remainder of his father's and grandfather's papers to the library upon his own death in 1972. He was the last surviving descendant of President Chester Arthur. We'll end on a quote from Sand's letter of August 28, 1882, which really sums up how Julia Sand saw herself. She was a, quote, poor little woman who has always been the youngest of her family, who, consequently, if she lives to be 50, will always be treated like a child who would have no comfort in life if she could not occasionally scold some very big man. I like the idea that she was like, I know I'm scolding this very big man, but I'm definitely doing it anyway. (laughs) 
Do you have any scoldy listener mail? It's not scoldy at all. Uh, this is a very recent listener mail that's mostly about a much older episode, but I wanted to read it because it connects to something that we said today. It's from Jay. Uh, Jay starts off talking a little bit about some kitties. Which is a <gasps> kitties. Very, yes. Uh, Jay says, hi, Holly and Tracy. Let me start off by saying that my husband and I and our four cats are huge fans of yours. Our middle cat, Pippin, is so sassy and full of spunk that we've taken to calling her Pippin Fry. Our youngest cat, Olive, is called Olive V. Wilson because she's the quieter, more reserved one. We obviously have too much time on our hands, especially in winter. My family... <laughs> I find that whole story very charming. I do, too. My family and I live on a small farm in north-central Minnesota. It gets bitterly cold here in late winter, and when it does, I always give your schoolhouse blizzard of 1888 episode another listen. I love this episode. My farm is nestled in the rolling hills and lakes of Minnesota's central lakes region. I can count at least three one-room schoolhouses within a 10-mile radius of my home. Since I live in an area that was hit hard by the blizzard, it's natural that I'm drawn to this topic. I've seen a few blizzards since moving to Minnesota, but nothing on the scale of the 1888 blizzard. The thought of going through that experience with nothing but horses, buggies, oil lamps, and no modern forms of communication is horrifying to me. It must have felt like the end of the world. Anytime someone in the area asks me about the blizzard, I always direct them to your episode. Possible episode idea. I've searched the archive and can find nothing related to Lewis Comfort Tiffany, the stained glass guy, not his father, the jewelry designer. You should put him on your list of possible episodes. I'm an amateur stained glass artist, and I really admire the windows and lamps of Tiffany. Most people know of Tiffany lamps, but what they don't realize is that the majority of these lamps were designed and constructed by a team of women called the Tiffany Girls. Clara Driscoll was the head of the women's department. Within the last 10 years, it's been revealed that she and her Tiffany girls, not Louis Tiffany, were responsible for the designs of many of Tiffany's most iconic lamps. Take a dive into the topic if you get some time. Keep up the good work. You guys make our days a little more brighter. Jay and also Eric, uh, thank you so much. Jay and Eric for sending this note. Uh, it was a total coincidence that this came in over the weekend where um, I was working on this episode where we talk about the President Just Ray Arthur having Lewis Comfort Tiffany totally redecorate the White House. <laughs> but he actually wound up on my topic to-do list, uh, I think it was late last year, where it just seemed like every time I turned around, somebody was talking about Lewis Comfort Tiffany um, I went to a thing called History Camp, and there was somebody there that was talking about a historic building restoration here in Boston that was uh, an, an entire decoration work done by Lewis Comfort Tiffany. And then shortly thereafter, I was walking through town, and one of the churches that has all the stained glass windows done by Tiffany was uh, allowing people to come in and look at the windows. Um, and it like he just kept coming up over and over. And I was like, I feel like the universe is telling me to do a podcast on Lewis Comfort Tiffany. So I don't know when that might happen, but he is on my list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still very honored that a kitty is, you know, in any way referred to with my name. It's a big yeah. honor in my book. Yeah. I have a cat named after, I have two cats named after two of my favorite Imagineers at Disney. Mm -hmm. And I know what an honor it was, in my opinion, to get those <laughs> names. So it means a great deal to me. Also, um, we split those cats up over which ones we think are like me and which ones are like my husband. So I understand this logic completely. That doesn't sound like too much time on your hands to me at all. No. We currently have no cats in my household, but we are currently hoping to change that 
in the relatively near future. If you would like to write to us about your kitties <laughs> or our podcast or just to say hi, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missing History. That is where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and find the show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together and a searchable archive of every episode ever. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 